Welcome to Vegas Never Sleeps. I'm Stephen Maggi. Philosopher George Santillana said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And when it comes to deadly pandemics, this is especially true. On today's show, we will remember our history, specifically the Spanish flu of 1918. It was the deadliest pandemic in history, infecting an estimated 500 million people worldwide. Today, you'll meet America's foremost expert of this tragic event. Everyone says we've never seen anything like this pandemic. We just, we haven't experienced it. And while that's true, we have had one of these before. In fact, there's a huge story. And we've got John Barry from Tulane University who wrote a fantastic, really the definitive book about the 1918 Spanish flu. It's called The Great Influenza, the epic story of the deadliest plague in history. Now, John, uh, like I was saying in the opening, that was a lot different than this in the sense that, at least to the to date, quite a bit more deadly. Uh, yeah, infected fewer people, although quite a lot, probably about a third of the population, uh, higher case fatality rate, uh, huge numbers of dead. Exactly. And it's way different than this time in the sense that everybody knows everything that's going on, or at least as much as uh, is possible, right? Back then... Well, I went through your book, and your book says uh, a lot of this stuff was hidden, and really that's kind of the evil part of this whole thing. Uh, that's correct. Because of the war, uh, the Wilson, the president, had created an propaganda infrastructure, uh, which frankly just lied about things. Uh, the idea was to keep morale up. <clears throat> no negative information was allowed anywhere. <clears throat> And the pandemic arrived, and they continued to lie. Uh, they said that it was known as the Spanish flu, not because it started in Spain, but actually because Spain was not at war and wrote about it. Uh, countries at war had a censored press. In the U.S., it was more self-censored, and they didn't write anything about it. So it became known as Spanish flu. But national public health leaders were saying things like, um, this is ordinary influenza by another name. And wow. We didn't we didn't have a Tony Fauci back then. Uh, yeah, and, that's and, wild. And people knew that it wasn't ordinary influenza by another name because neighbors were dying sometimes in 24 hours. Uh, they were dying with horrific symptoms, um, <clears throat> misdiagnosed initially as typhoid, cholera, dengue. Uh, you could bleed from not only your nose and mouth, and nosebleeds were quite common, maybe 10-15% of people had a nosebleed, uh, but you could even bleed from your eyes and ears, which is pretty frightening, particularly to a layperson. Uh, oh, God. So people were turning so dark blue from lack of oxygen. Uh, in the book, I quoted one doctor writing a colleague saying he couldn't tell African-American soldiers from white soldiers because their pallor was so similar, uh, which that, of course, spread rumors of black plague, black death of the you know Middle Ages. And all this while the national public health officials are telling you uh, this is nothing to worry about if proper precautions are taken and things like that. And those comments were, as a general rule, echoed by local public health officials 
It, so, it's incredible, John. But were, were people ticked off about this when this came out later? I mean, as this thing goes, people had to figure out, hey, they're lying to us. Well, the response was, was more that, you know, terror during the moment, since they knew uh, they knew they were being lied to. They had no information. The unknown, I think, is the scariest. Your imagination uh, is much more powerful than any reality. Uh, and it wasn't so much in anger as it had a real impact on society. Uh, you know, people... We're, you know, we're social distancing now consciously, but I, I know I, I do go for walks, and every time I pass someone at a, on the street, eight, ten feet apart usually, yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, we laugh and smile at each other and things like that. But in 1918, society actually began to fray in some places. Wow. Uh, in fact, the uh, head a scientist, a sober, serious guy, not given to overstatement, who had been dean of the University of Michigan Medical School before the war and ran the Army's Communicable Disease Division during the war, uh, wrote privately. He, he worried that, quote, if this continues for a few more weeks, civilization could disappear from the face of the earth. That's how bad it got. Of course, he wrote that just at the peak, and things started to get better then. Wow. Uh, so the impact was probably, in in many ways, and cer- certainly in terms of the fear factor, uh, greater uh, than what we're going through right now. And I know there's plenty of justifiable concern. I don't think people are panicking now, but... Uh, they are concerned and should be. Right, right. Well, it, well, the scariest part of this book is when you read about how this happened. It came on in the spring, then went away for a little while. And the bad part, the really the horrible part, was September to December, which – talk a little about that because it had to freak people out because that's when it really hit big. Right. Well, the spring wave wasn't really noticed at the, during the time. It hit some places, didn't hit others. Like New York had a very pronounced spring wave. Los Angeles didn't have a single influenza death in the spring. Mm. Uh, but the virus probably mutated. You know, it clearly was the same virus, uh, but something turned it more virulent in the fall. Uh, there are some hypotheses about what was going on, but my own thinking is it was probably the virus itself just mutated. Uh, and it came back in very lethal form. Uh, and it and hit everywhere in the world almost simultaneously. Probably two thirds of the, you know, the it sort of lasted, you know, 18 months to two years. But two thirds of the deaths uh, occurred probably in about a 14 or 15 week period in the fall of 1918. Uh, and, wow. You know, it would go through a community in anywhere from uh, probably about six to uh, ten weeks. Uh, and then it was gone. There is no sign. And in, in 1918, in retrospect, there were many hints, many pieces of evidence that that virus was had the potential to be very, very virulent. Uh, fortunately, nowhere in the world right now is there the slightest hint, no evidence of any kind whatsoever, 
that that will happen with this virus. So I would like to reassure people about that. Yeah, it, it definitely is reassuring. Let's talk about some of the differences, if we could. I mean, first of all, this was a bird flu, as I understand it. And while it's this pandemic is the biggest enemy of the elderly, that wasn't the case of the Spanish flu. So kind of run us through right. those things. Well, all influenza viruses, actually, you could consider bird flu because that's a natural reservoir for, for them, but they mutate very rapidly. Uh, that gives them the opportunity to jump species. Uh, in 1918, they infected every mammal, including seals, uh, tigers, you know, moose, yeah, pigs. Wow. In fact, we gave, people gave uh, flu to the pigs. It wasn't the other way around. 2009, of course, we had swine flu, but people gave it to pigs in 1918. Uh, and, you know, a respiratory virus jumping, jumping species. Uh, and that's actually why when so-called bird flu surfaced in the late 90s and then again with a vengeance in 2003, 2004, uh, that was the impetus for the Bush administration to pass a major piece of legislation, billions of dollars, to start a preparedness effort. Uh, which they got going with, with you know, qu- quite a bit of seriousness and intent, and you know, improving vaccine technologies, manufacturing uh, vaccine plants, uh, you know, scientific research, uh, preparedness planning for what you do before you have drugs. I was part of that planning effort. Um, National stockpile of respirators and other th- other equipment and so forth. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that great start from the Bush administration uh, eroded has eroded lately and been underfunded. Why do you think that happens? I mean, is it because if you don't have one in real recent memory, eh, it's just not top of mind, or or what? Yeah, well, OMB doesn't like to spend money. And, you know, putting stuff in a uh, national stockpile for an emergency, uh, it costs money. Maintaining it costs money. So if you lose your focus and don't take it seriously as a threat, you're not going to spend dollars on it. And, And that's what's happened. More with John Barry, author of The Great Influenza, The Epic Story of the Deadliest Plague in History, in just a moment. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, coast to coast on the BizTalk Radio Network. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. We are talking with John Barry, author of The Great Influenza, the epic story of the deadliest plague in history, which examines the 1918 flu pandemic, the worst pandemic in history. So do you think now after this thing's all over, because I I think it's going to be fascinating. I mean, first of all, knowing what you know, John, as this thing goes in the summer and we see the, the curve bending and all that sort of thing, I imagine we're going to be looking at this really careful for a while because of exactly what happened with the Spanish flu. We don't want this thing, and like you said, it doesn't look like it's going to be like that, which we we hope is true, but 
I guess there's a race to the vaccine, and there's also uh, there's going to be some hesitation. Was there a lot of hesitation after uh, 1918? It was sort of part of you know the subconscious or in the back of your mind. Um, we had the Roaring Twenties. Uh, I think the Roaring Twenties, the idea of you know let's party now, we don't know about tomorrow. Uh, I think that you know, psychologically may have been part of a, partly a result of the pandemic and so forth. Um, but remember that that in 1918 was really pretty brief experience, uh, a matter of weeks. This thing is actually going to last, I believe, quite a bit longer. Uh, if only because of the uh, incubation period of influenza is one to four days. Most people get sick at two days. Uh, coronavirus is two to 14 days, and most people get sick at five and a half or six days. And when you compound, that plus influenza, you get over more rapidly. This thing takes uh, quite a bit longer before you get sick and quite a bit longer before you recover from the sickness fully. Uh, it's just going to last longer. Uh, you know, this, this is, you know, it's tough. And I didn't answer one of your earlier questions to jump in there now. Uh, 1918, and this was part of the terror, the peak age for death was 28. Uh, over two-thirds of the dead were people aged 18 to 45 or maybe 50. Uh, people over 65 who normally are the targets of influenza uh, escaped almost entirely. Well over 90% of the excess mortality was people under 65. So what that means is that there had been a virus very similar to the 1918 virus that occurred sometime in their, past, in their youth and gave them natural immunity. Uh, but it was so mild, even though it was similar enough to provide immunity, it was so mild that it pretty much escaped the detection of medical history, uh, which is kind of interesting. Wow, yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> it, it, is, is that part of the hope with this thing, that hopefully so, so many people that we have no clue have actually had those, uh, you know, they were asymptomatic, but they did have some in there, and and that's going to help as things go? Uh, that is the hope, certainly, and probably the expectation. Wow. Well, I think the most important part of the story, and, and the, the book is so fascinating because it's not just about what happened and so forth, but this whole idea of this cover-up and, you know, it's really politics, power, the wars going on. First and foremost, uh, John, the fact that we have so much news coverage now, you know, let alone things like Twitter and social media and so forth, that has to make a difference. They couldn't do something, at least in this type of society, that they were able to do back then, could you? Could they? Uh, not to the extent they did then. You know, unfortunately, we did have almost two months of, you know, the White House downplaying this. Um, I'm not saying 
they were lying, they may have believed it, but they, if they did believe it, then they were frankly foolish. Uh, anybody who knew anything about disease understood that uh, this thing was almost certainly going to explode around the world, including the United States, and have a very, very significant impact. I know that uh, I drafted an op-ed with a working title, This Virus Cannot Be Contained, back in the middle of January, although when it finally ran, I decided to soften it and said, can this virus be contained? Probably not. So that ran in January in the Washington Post. Wow. Um, I guess Trump was so consumed with the impeachment uh, that... You know, he just wasn't paying attention. I, I, well, I can't speculate as to why or what. And, and then, of course, Fox, unfortunately, seemed to take it as a Democratic plot to undermine the administration. So we had a very, very slow start. Certainly one of and possibly the single worst, one of the worst or maybe the worst, record in the developed world in terms of testing. We're still far, far, far behind. And testing is key. They've, they've managed to stay ahead of this, not only in the Asian countries like uh, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, where it is spreading, but nothing like here. Their economies are not stopped, uh, and they were able to do this and the same thing also in, in Germany, uh, certainly a developed Western free society. They've, they've got it under control in Germany because they took it seriously from day one and they got tests out there so they could identify people who were sick, isolate them, contact trace, quarantine their contacts, uh, and the rest of life for most of the people continued pretty much as normal. Uh, In Singapore, they didn't even close schools. Uh, But here in the United States, we're so far behind and are still far behind on testing. It's very difficult to get ahead of the curve. More in a moment from John Barry, author of The Great Influenza, the epic story of the deadliest plague in history. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, Nationwide on the BizTalk Radio Network. Hi, this is Dr. Annette of The Dr. Annette Show. We've been talking today about COVID-19 and steps you can take to possibly prevent or mitigate infection. Silver and zinc have been used for centuries as disinfectants and as antimicrobials. Visit our website at www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Professional line not included. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part. 
Because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Manchie. With us today is John Barry, author of The Great Influenza, the epic story of the deadliest plague in history. And we're discussing the 1918 flu pandemic and comparing it to what we are living through today. Are you satisfied with what's happened since they finally did this? I mean, was this the right way to go? Because some people are saying, like like, like you say, well, geez, uh, do we really need to close down the economy? There's a whole argument. Yeah. But was, was this the right way to do this? I wish it happened sooner. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's no other way. I mean, if you – there would be I – mean, this virus is more contagious than influenza. Influenza in 1918 – infected about a third of the world's population. It killed 50 to 100 million people. If you adjust for population, that's 220 to 440 million people today. In the United States, where the numbers are better, it killed about 675,000 people. If you adjust for population, that's 2 million. This virus is not as lethal, but it's lethal enough, and it's more contagious. This is going to infect at least probably half of the population. could easily infect more than half of the population. So even at a 1% case fatality rate, you just do the math, half the population is 160 million. Wow. 1% is 1.6 million deaths. It could be conceivably, if it infected more than that, you'd have more deaths. So you've got to intervene and prevent that. I don't think that's a price that anybody wants to pay, you know, one and a half to two million deaths. Uh, that's a lot of dead people, a lot of dead Americans. Uh, so I think the drastic action is absolutely necessary uh, to try to get some handle on this to slow it down. You know, that's the thing about this virus is we have a reasonable amount of control over it ourselves, even without drugs. So it's actually up to us what happens. So if we social distance properly, if we take it seriously, if we sustain over a period of time that social distancing, then we can get ahead of this thing. And in, instead of one and a half to two million people dying, it'll be, it's still going to be a pretty high death toll. Uh, even Trump said if we keep it to 100,000, he's going to consider that a victory. And, and frankly, I think keeping it that low is going to be difficult. But that does not mean that we have to stop the economy cold for months at a time. There are ways to bring it back, but it has to be a rational plan, and we, and we do need to continue this uh, shutdown, uh, certainly for a few more weeks at the very, very least, and a good chance for a little bit longer than that, and develop a rational plan to bring things back. Well, then that's encouraging. But let's talk about that possible plan. What do you think it looks looks like? I mean, you understand this as well as anybody. So, what? How would you rule this out if they were asking you for your opinion and so forth? Of uh, and again, I know it depends on a lot of things that could pop up. But kind of run us through how you would see that. Well, you've got to identify people who've been exposed. Uh, those people uh, probably have immunity, uh, and. They could certainly go back to work, you know, protecting people who are elderly, and I'm over 70. Uh, of course, you would know I don't look like it if you this were a video. You're supposed to laugh. Then. I know, I know. <laughs> I, w- I would have guessed you. I would have guessed younger, no question about it. I would hope you'd say the same about me. <laughs> okay. Uh, 
you know, uh, and, you know, uh, I haven't worked the whole process out myself, uh, but it would be sort of a rolling kind of thing. And uh, you also have to recognize that this thing is going to be with, actually, this disease will be a human disease forever from now on. It's not going to be exterminated uh, from the human population, but it can be controllable. Um, hopefully, we'll get a big assist from some drugs that may affect the course of the disease. You're talking about the malaria drug and so well, forth? Well, not necessarily that one. That one, there are a lot of, there is actually some new studies out that show it has no effect. There are some that show it has some effect. It's also a pretty dangerous drug. It can kill you, uh, some of the side effects. Uh, that's one of the reasons the medical community was so upset when when Trump recommended it uh, to people because it is not an easy drug. It is not like taking an aspirin. Uh, the drug itself could kill you uh, from other causes. So you have to be very careful, particularly with the mixed evidence. It is possible that it has some effect, but I was there are at least there are literally dozens, dozens of drugs being tested right now in clinical trials to find one that uh, should have some impact. And, you know, a lot of these were identified when SARS was a threat, which, as I'm sure your whole audience knows, was also a coronavirus, and a lesser-known outbreak named, called MERS, uh, which I don't think it ever reached the United States at all. Um, um, but that's also a coronavirus. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. We are talking with John Barry, author of The Great Influenza, the epic story of the deadliest plague in history, which examines the 1918 flu pandemic, the worst pandemic in history. Yeah, well, I mean, so, are we talking testing when you're saying about this? I, I guess it's still more testing, right? Because the more testing, it's one way, obviously, you're going to find out that somebody does have the antibiotic. Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. You know, and then there's something called herd immunity when so much of the population has been exposed and has uh, immunity. The virus can't really get a foothold, even though there are still people who are susceptible to it. Right. Uh, we're not sure what the number is that would be necessary for this virus to have significant herd immunity. You know, last uh, week, John, we had on a gentleman talking about possibly the NBA playoffs starting up again. And, of course, the plan is they might do it in Vegas. And if they do, there won't be any uh, fans in the stands, which made me think to talk to you and ask you, how long is it going to be before we do things like that, where you've got 20,000 or 50,000 in one place at one time all moved together? That's not going to just happen overnight, right? As you talk about this kind of uh, coming out, that's going to have to ease out maybe even a little bit longer. I would think so. I not so sure we're going to have a baseball season or a football season, uh, at least with large numbers of fans. Uh, personally, I wouldn't go to a game. Really? Uh, and okay. I'm an ex-football coach and love the game. Uh, wow. But, but I would not go to a game this year. Well, you live in um, Louisiana. It must kill you, right? LSU, <laughs> national champions. I, I actually coached uh, a nationally ranked two-lane team that 
kicked LSU's ass <laughs> when they went in a good LSU team that went to the Orange Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> Tulane's got a good college football history. A lot of people don't realize because we only think back a year or two. But, yeah, Tulane's actually – you're absolutely right. Tulane's got a good football history. So that's something. I'm, I'm surprised you know that. Maybe your Las Vegas better. I don't know. I'm, I'm closer to your age than the 20-year-olds we were talking about. So, yeah. <laughs> But, uh, well, as we think about this, so I get the idea. The idea is the people that we know can get out there. It's almost kind of their duty, right, to get out there and work and do as much as we can. Because this is a big deal. I mean, this economy, it's a scary thing. What could happen if it goes on long and long enough? Um, yeah, I mean, again, if we, I mean, it's not only tests we need, but we need chemicals called reagents that, make the tests work. Right now, we're running out of the reagents. Uh, so even as testing kits finally begin to come online, we're running out of reagents that allow you to actually run the test. Uh, you know, eventually, we will have large number, you know, we can do serological studies, you know, studies of people's blood, see if they have antibodies in there, uh, antibody tests that are more rapid, problem is accuracy. Uh, these things can be solved, but they all take time. And the exact timing, is I don't think anybody has the answer. In fact, I know nobody has the answer to because, you know, I talk to uh, colleagues in the preparedness field all the time. Uh, but it's not going to be forever. And the, the important thing to remember is, bad as this is, it's not even 1918 much less the bubonic plague of the Middle Ages. Uh, it's not going to wipe out a quarter to a third of the population. We are going to come back. Uh, there is an incredible amount of disruption from, you know, uh, people who's, you know, I have, you know, close friends who are writers. You know, their income obviously is disrupted. A close friend who uh, runs a hair salon, obviously she can't, work uh her income's disrupted you know not a, let alone all the people who've been laid off from regular employers it, it you know it's incredibly difficult hopefully what the congress did to help uh and there may be still another bill hopefully yeah. that will smooth things out in the meantime it is very very difficult More from John Barry, author of The Great Influenza, The Epic Story of the Deadliest Plague in History, in just a moment. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, coast to coast on the BizTalk Radio Network. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. We are chatting with John Barry, author of The Great Influenza, The Epic Story of the Deadliest Plague in History, which looks at the 1918 Spanish flu, the worst pandemic in history. Well, you're there in the French Quarter, so, I mean, you're seeing some of those little businesses. you got to wonder how many are going to come back when, when this is finally over. Some of those people are probably never going to come back. Uh, unfortunately not. Of course, you know, the French Quarter is tourist dependent. Uh, you have major hotels, chains, you know, big hotels that are closed. Uh, another one 
that the city, a couple that the city has uh, uh, leased for patients. Uh, it you know, yeah. I mean, given that and the oil price collapse, which hits Louisiana, wow. you know, yeah. we may be the uh, even harder hit than Vegas. Obviously, Vegas is has a problem because of tourism. No question. Uh, but at least they not suffering from the oil price collapse on top of it. So we're probably a lot like Vegas, certainly, in the tourist issue. Yeah, it, it, it's a frustrating thing. Uh, just one last thing before you go. I mean, this is fascinating. And, I mean, to see... I love this type of history and what people like yourself that got into it. I mean, you're an expert. You dove in. You've, you've written... A, of course, this is a great book. The other book is about uh, called Rising Tide, the Great Mississippi Flood of 27. When you study these things, do you almost feel like you were there? I mean, in the sense of you dig into it so deep that I, I guess you got to kind of understand the feel of the culture at the time to really understand the effects of these things. Yeah, thank you for, for saying that. Uh, the book took me seven years full-time doing nothing else so wow. and, and there were uh plenty of times i wanted to throw the whole thing out the window i was so frustrated <laughs> although after as, there's a character in the book uh, i mean a real person oswald avery probably the single person most deserving of the nobel prize who never won it uh, and he kind of inspired me. I, I focused a lot on the scientists because when I write, I, I may be the only person who thinks it, but in my mind, I'm always writing about power in some form or other. And, and that disease of people with power were the ones, the scientists who were trying to fight it. So they were the main characters in the book. Uh, but Avery, uh, they were considering, he, Based on influ- the work that started on influenza, but 25 years later, he's a guy who actually discovered that DNA carries a genetic code, which was extremely controversial oh, yeah. at the time, uh, but probably one of the most important, if not the most important discovery in the entire 20th century. Uh, and the Nobel Committee, it was so controversial they were considering giving him the prize for his lifelong work on immunology, uh, but decided not to because it was so controversial. And, you know, they weren't going to endorse his claim that DNA carried the genetic code. But he went through that 25 years search. He figured out this problem and was trying to solve it. He had a nervous breakdown. He had, you know, scientists publish papers. He went 11 years without publishing a single paper. That's like a football coach losing 40 games in a row and still believing in what he was doing and still keep going. Um, so thinking about Avery actually kept me going during the course of the book. And, and I, I got to think that's got to be the most exciting thing is to get with somebody like that where you're looking at somebody who really needs to be appreciated in history. And fortunately, like you can shine a light on them. They're really a lot of people that, that should know about them don't. Uh, exactly. Yeah, it was gratifying to learn about him. Uh, 
fact, Lloyd Carr, the former Michigan football coach who's in the College Football Hall of Fame, won like eight or nine Big Ten championships, won national championship. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's a he's a friend. And after he read the book, said he he told his team the story of of, of Avery to keep them going through uh, one one hard stretch. Wow, that well, it is a great great example of tenacity. I think you know, exactly. Just, so. And uh, you know that's what we need now. We need to the scientists need to be tenacious as they are um, in in getting a solution, and we need to be tenacious in uh, our social distancing so that we have a chance to get ahead of this thing, and and then get the economy moving again. While we are social distancing, what a better thing to take some of your time is to get one of the very best books historically ever written, The Great Influenza, The Epic Story of the Deadliest Plague in History by John Barry. Hey, John, thanks again for being with us, and uh, hopefully this will be the last one you have to deal with. We won't have more of these things coming up. So, uh, One would hope. <laughs> One's enough. One's enough. Well, thanks, John. And thank you for listening today as well. Don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Have a great weekend and stay safe. This is Stephen Maggi, who will soon be reminding you once again that Vegas never sleeps. Social distancing tip. Keeping your distance from others is important in slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are some fun things to do alone. Read a book. Take a walk. Unpack your suitcase from that trip you took last September. Paint a self-portrait. Catch up on a TV series. Do a puzzle. Remember, we should all stay home to lower the risk for everyone. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hi, this is Dr. Annette of The Dr. Annette Show. We've been talking today about COVID-19 and steps you can take to possibly prevent or mitigate infection. Silver and zinc have been used for centuries as disinfectants and as antimicrobials. We're offering you this special discount to make it easier and more affordable to get these essential silver and zinc liquid mineral supplements. Visit our website at www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Once again, that's www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Professional line not included. We are all in this together and we can get through this. Learn more at elementalresearchinc.com and use the promo code VEGAS20. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.